0: welcome to the podcast everybody we always stutter when we go go into this is how we're going to get going Uh, this is our R cubed podcast that mary and i have been hosting we bring on um, guests every few weeks here to talk about different topics that are you know important to us and important to you know, higher education. And this week we have on Ron Ferguson. He is sociology instructor here at Ridgewater College.
1: One of the things we love about our podcast is because we kind of come into it a little bit organically, we kind of sometimes take left turns or right turns and kind of go down some avenues. And the, the core of this podcast, Ron, I think you know this, is we want to talk about your passion. Like, why do you do the things you do? Like, what brings you here what feeds that fire right that passion for teaching and for you specifically right you have so much fire and passion for teaching in your classroom but I also know from outside conversations that we've had that you carry all of that into your community into the community in a larger way but you also bring I think you bring back from the community into your classroom. And I'm super interested because there's so many things we can talk about with you. We're going to have to have like four podcasts
0: with you. Got to limit it here,
2: yeah.
1: Right, because Wade was like, I want to talk about DEI. And I'm like, not today.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'd love to sometime, Wade.
1: Right. So first of all, let's just start organically. Like, right, how did you get here? How did you get to us, Ridgewater, like into this classroom teaching sociology? What was the draw and why, why the draw to teaching for you?
2: No, it's great. You know, for me, uh, coming from the US Virgin Islands, so for the listeners, I'm from St. Croix, Virgin Islands, uh, a little town called Frederickstead, an island you could drive across on your lunch break. It's relatively small. And so, small, and I'd say somewhat rural suburban, right? So, moving uh, from an island to First-generation college student to uh, North Dakota was quite a cultural shift for me. Uh, snow, you know, uh, was something like that was that. very new, and became pretty awful quickly, as we all can relate <laughs> here, right? You never truly get over it. And so, uh, as I went to co- university, you know, one of the things for me it was a great sacrifice to be the first generation. You know, in some ways, my I think role was to sort of get a job and work in the community, and and sitting in a college classroom for the first time in my life gave me a feeling and a hope that I never really had before of uh, just being able to sort of improve myself and grow and, and uh, just was very freeing for me uh, to freed freedom in some ways to imagine a world that I could live in that of my own design, because most things were just happening to me on the island, right? So uh, it gave me the opportunity to, to, to think about the various avenues of life. And I loved learning uh, a lifelong learner, if you will. And so I was completely inspired to move on in my education, got my, uh, obviously my bachelor's degree. And then I said, you know, I wanna learn more in sociology. So I moved on to get my master's and my PhD at University of North Dakota. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, I, I wanna pay it forward. I love doing this so much. I love to teach. Uh, you know I had taught some graduate courses and so I said, I want to make a career out of this and and as I looked across the country for positions in all kinds of institutions, big and small, this school named Ridgewater had an opening and I said, you know let me give give that a give that a try and and I really just fell in love with our student body here at Ridgewater. Uh, students that I see myself in in so many of them, wanting to seeing that hope and the opportunity that education brings, the transformation it can bring, and that really brings me to where I am today. That I continue to do that, invest in the lives of students, and work with some great colleagues like yourselves. And and right, it's for me, it's come full circle. So that's that's me in a nutshell.
1: In a nutshell, but you also, Ron, do so much more. Like you do so much more you touch lives of students. You do a lot of things like at the college, but you also live this life of passion, first generation, working with, working with youth, um, on different levels. You would talk to me about this thing that feeds your soul that you do in Chicago. Can you explain what that is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. For 17 years, I've worked with a program called the Chicago impact program. And, uh, it started off working uh, within a faith community, right? So there was, a. Years ago, uh, I went um, with a group of people from Minnesota to sort of help some folks in the community. There's some building projects uh, that was I was participating in, and it started out me doing things like that. But what happened is I found that I really fell in love with the community of Chicago. Um, and given my discipline, sociology, and thinking about how we can participate in structural change and really help, uh, you know, we can, in-community, engage in actions that have positive outcomes for for not just a few, but for many. And so I started to participate in not only that, but more broad-based programs, working with the Chicago public schools, working with other, like multiple stakeholders uh, in the uh, city government, as well as the um, uh, various churches in, in the Chicago community. So I was working with all these entities and still do and had fostered relationships, because I've gone 17 years and know a lot of folks in various different levels. And I'd say in in Chicago, there is a desire to sort of create change from within, right? There there is a desire to sort of leverage the talent and the, the, the strong and resilient community they have. And I just am thankful to partner with it, right? So that's been my passion to sort of partner with with a community that has experienced lots of hardship Uh, as as the area of Chicago specifically I have have been fortunate to participate in which is in the south side Inglewood area and so that's been what feeds me is my ability to accompany folks within the community right Um, I follow a uh, sort of a mission of uh, with not for and so I get to participate with the various leaders in the Chicago community. And it's just been enriching to me to do, to support that and do that work.
0: Ron, what I think what impresses me is um, your reach. Like you've never just been satisfied or happy. And a lot of instructors are right. They make a, they make a change. They, they change students' lives in the classroom, uh, either online or one-on-one with those students. And then it kind of ends there. And it seems like that is only, that's like a small or at least it's only a piece of what you're actually doing, because you're involved in in so many of these outside organizations and efforts. And I just, I'm, I'm impressed at how much you're willing to give.
2: I was going to say, thank you, Wade. I feel like to do what I do in the class as a sociologist, to awaken the student's imagination to the social world around them, meaning that there are these systems and, and structures that affect our lives. We may or may not know about it, but we're impacted by them. So we call it the sociological imagination. And so I want to awaken that, but also not just to sort of recognize it, but say the areas where we've made messes as, as human beings, we 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 collectively have done it, we collectively can change it. And so what I try to do is sort of my part isn't just to talk about it, but I consider myself the practicing sociologist that I do the work, whether it's my research that I do, because I have a whole scholarship side of me that just is curious and wants to learn about things but then there's a side of me that's involved in action and saying what actions are you taking right um what what steps are you taking that you can walk the walk walk the talk you know so to speak and that's really what is important to me but as you said earlier it feeds my class the being out there in community shows you what's at stake right? It gives you a sense of what the situations are because you've been there on the ground, not from not learning about it by proxy through textbooks and, and other things, but you're there. You, you see the individuals that are involved, the people. So I find that that's been a, a valuable part of bringing sociology to the classroom.
0: Well, it makes me think of um, Bradley Wolf here at Ridgewater College has done um, a bit on service learning. And in a way, that's what this is, right? Getting mm-hmm. Just, I mean, boots on the ground. You're out there doing the work. It's not something that is just theoretical that happens in your classroom. It's it, it's physically doing the stuff and directly. It sounds like you. It's not indirect work all the time. It's direct work. You are working with people directly to solve these problems and try to uh, come up with some solutions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as you said that, you know, one thing I've always thought about is couldn't I potentially do a course where I have Ridgewater students work with me in the community? And it's something I've thought a lot about. And I, there's been uh, vocal support of me doing that. And, and the, my only pause is doing it right. Correct. So it's, it's not just, Hey, let's have this experience, right. Where students go and, 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 and see things, but how can we, you know, going back to sort of my, so the idea of accompaniment, how can we work with communities in ways that not only foster learning for our students, but really a benefit to the communities that are that we're participating in. So that's something I actually think a lot about is doing it right and, and what, can, what can we do to support? And I often ask folks uh, within the community, what can we do? And, and as opportunity arises, I can certainly see a cohort of us, you know, the faculty bringing a few classes and working in the Chicago area, the public schools, maybe in the public health, Uh, things like that that we can we can connect with but what it's what's been the key part has been the the relationships I've built right I, I I've I know some of the folks and one person said to me a few years ago well what's different about you is you know you you come back you participate you're here in our community and and that has been awesome to hear that you know that's that is why the I have the opportunities to serve in a way. And I think it sent a lesson to all of us, right? That it takes real relationships and commitment from us when we want to do that, 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 that change work and that heart work. We gotta, we gotta be there and and have relationships.
1: And I think I think it also speaks to you, Ron, being able to step back and listen to the need. Um we often come, you know, I come from a place born and raised here in Minnesota, right? And when we do, like, when we did mission, like, mission sort of mission building work when I was younger, we would go places to do something for someone else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Exactly what you said. Instead of doing something with them, oftentimes when we think about, like, the learning piece of it, the, the real true learning that happens when you're doing work like that is when you're not doing it for, you're doing it with. When you come alongside and you take the time to listen, and hear what's being asked of you. And sometimes what you think is being asked of you is not what's being, like when you think what's going to be asked of you mm-hmm. is one thing. And then you're asked something else and you're like, well, I'm not comfortable with that. But if you're going with someone, if you're coming alongside someone, you got to be, again, that's that whole being comfortable of being uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. And
1: that real learning happens when we're in a space of being sort of vulnerable. And this is something Wade and I talk a ton about is willing to be vulnerable in our classrooms also. Because when students see us taking chances or taking risks or stepping out of our comfort zone, it can reaffirm for them that that's something that they can do
2: too.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Zora Hammond writes a book about col- responsive pedagogy, culturally responsive pedagogy. I want oh, to think she brings do up- do you
1: mean, hold on, where do I, I have that book somewhere. I'm reading it in my solo
2: class. <laughs> nice. Well, one thing you'll read or have read is that she really ta- emphasizes this, not com- this point of a, a, t- a partnership, right, that there's this partnership we have with our students or those around us. And so I think you're right, the philosophy that I sort of have out in, in my work in, in, in various social settings um, tr- is the same as the classroom that I see I have a partnership with my students they are not merely empty vessels that I'm pouring in information, right? They actually have- I just got shivers lot.
1: when you said that, Ron. I just have to say, I just totally got shivers when you said that because that is so much, so real, right? They are not empty vessels I pour the knowledge into. Yep. Okay, go on, sorry. No, I,
2: and, and they have a lot of lived experience and, and important information. Um, and they are educated, right? To everyone, you know, I read a lot about look, in, in, acknowledging the- um, capital or the worth we all have, right? We all come from an experience and a background, and I leverage that. I see in my classroom, I get to work with and have a partnership in learning about something with these very experienced students in my class that have lived through and have knowledge about so many different things. So it, does, it, it changes the way we do it, right? Because it now is a with instead of that whole for, I'm doing it for my students who have, I have to give all this to, no, no, I get to learn and engage in sociality with my students who bring so much to the table. It's a very, it's a paradigm shift. And so. It's a huge paradigm shift. This, this it could really apply to anyone in their work as they really orient themselves to see it as working in partnership, as Hammond says. It's, it's transformative.
0: Okay. Ron, what's your definition of a successful student?
2: You know, that's great. That's a really good question because there was a historical time. So let me tell you what I would have said in the past. Okay. To me in the past, successful. Past successful student would have been one that says that that successfully got a grade in my like a C or better in the class, right? They they completed the course outcomes seventy percent whatever. That has changed in my teaching experience. Now I see the successful student as one that not only um, was able to successfully complete the course requirements, but was able to do so and but with bringing their whole self to the class, meaning that they felt that they could be in my class, meaning their whole self and that they were, <clears throat> so they were included and that that experience was one that they felt was one that benefited them. And let me tell you why I say it that way. I had a student that was an excellent student years ago. Um, he was graduating with his bachelor's degree. And um, you know I asked him about, so he was a win. He completed my class, he did awesome. He did great in all his coursework. Uh, and I said, how, how, how do you feel about this experience? And he said to me, I hated it. I survived this. And he was a student of color who had engaged in lots, experienced lots of microaggressions, lots of challenges in the community, did not feel welcome and included in so many classes. Said he was never called on in the class. He was himself invisible And he said, I did it. I I stinking survived it. And is that success? I don't think so. But the, the old school Ron would have said, oh, yeah, but he, he did great. He got eight in the class. He's awesome. But he survived it. And I don't want that to be. The successful student didn't survive it. They thrived. They felt, I'm included here. I belong here. So that's, that's sort of my adjustment that it's the academic self being successful, but also our social self and our social identity can also be part of that success that I was able to thrive socially. which again, that's, a, that's been an evolution of my definition of success.
0: Well I, I think a good teacher has that evolution or at least a, a similar path where it's not just strictly about um, those you know eight learning outcomes. And the reason I ask is because this is something that, I, that I'm concerned with all the time, right? It, if my student doesn't go out and start shooting products for target, can they still have, can they still be successful? Right. And I would have said probably when I started, no, like even it doesn't matter if they're not working in the field, then they're not successful. But now, um, I am very much in camp with you on this, Ron, that, um, I want them to be better people. This is the tip of the iceberg. What they learn in college should spark something else. It should be part of what they do for the rest of their life, how they treat people, um, and it's not strictly just about those technical skills. And I know we teach in two completely different disciplines, um, but it often is about, for me, it's something bigger. I can have extremely successful students um, that, that aren't in the media world of photography and video. And that to me was a paradigm shift to accept that and to, not, and to really not, not really push students that way, but to except that there's a different realm out there of success.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, you know, I actually tell my students, I don't want them all to be professional sociologists. I want them to use sociology in so many other areas. We actually need people thinking socially in law, in health, in government and all these other institutions that they're going to go into. So I'm actually pleased when they're taking a class like this and, and not, focusing it on okay i'm going to do this for a living but rather i'm going to apply some of these concepts let me just tell you one more thing when i say bring their full self i'm i'm really drawing on the work of my colleague terry huffman who wrote the book cultural masks that for many in education to be successful you got to put on a mask you got to put on a persona if you will that says here's who i am um it fits this sort of what the student should be right so you develop this sort of uh self that you think this is what I should be. We perform in a way, right? Many yeah. students that have imposter syndrome, they don't even know if they should be there. They're, what should I be? What should, how should I talk? What should, what should I wear? Everything, because this is what we're socialized to say. This is what a successful student looks like. I actually don't want students to do it. I want them to bring their whole self. That you're actually not having to say, I'm going to leave Kuzin, Ron. Because when I was a child, I, I have a Kuzin dialect, right? But when I was a kid, I used to get, uh, in trouble in class for speaking cruisian. So I would code switch, right? So in class I would speak like I'm talking to you in the islands. We called it Yankin. So I'd be involved in like speaking like a Yankee. That's what they said in the islands. So, so it was a it was a it was a way of speaking, right? And so I learned early on my, my teacher would say you want to they're all from the mainland, right? So all the mainland teachers would say, you want to get a job? You you got to speak like me. And so I learned that early on, right? So I did I bring my whole self to the class no i left that at home because this is what it seemed to be what what i should be and so i think about that experience all the time and so many of our students who don't get to bring their whole selves so are they successful successful in what assimilation to be like but they couldn't they had to leave the who they were at home and i don't want our students to do that so that's i think as i am evolving i'm thinking about student successes i i'm asking you to bring that self in because actually I recognize its value. I need it in my class. And so I think that's the that's that's the educational experience where successful students bring their whole self into the class. And as you said, carries the ideas outside into the world that they live in. Not the world I want them to be in, but the one that they live in.
1: Ron, can you, will you say the name of that author in that book again?
2: Terry Huffman, H-U-F-F-M-A-N. And here it, it's called Cultural Masks.
1: Yep. It's so interesting because... I have not read that book, but part of what I did during my sabbatical was do a lot of reading of Jesse Stommel, um, who's who's an educator, um, and he talks about, you know, what it means to be truly student ready. And that that's kind of the paradigm shift you're talking about, right? We want them... We come from a place that's so sort of institutionalized, right, like we, this is what education is, this is what we do, we provide the knowledge, we give you this information and you come in and you look like this and you do this. And if you, if you don't fall into this sort of category, you gotta fix yourself to fall into that category. you know, um, And he talks about the fact that we have to be better at being student ready. Because a student doesn't look like me, talk like me, act like me, does not mean that that student isn't ready. And I have to acknowledge that I gotta, I gotta, I'm the one who has to step back and think about it. Because students are not like me. Students are who students are, and I have to be more student ready and be thinking about that. Like the whole, like we talk in English a lot about whether um, black Black English is acceptable in in the classroom, and I am. Totally cool with it. I am far more about content than whether you do what I think you need to do academically appropriately. Like, is this stuff important? Yes. If you're gonna go get your master's and PhD and that sort of stuff, you have to learn to sort of think this way, but it doesn't mean that if you write in black English, that's not academic because it is. It is academic, right? I, I am trying in my world to be more student ready and for a lot of people, that's hard because it's not comfortable.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: You know, um, I'm glad that you mentioned this book because I'm totally going to go get it and read it. So thank you for that.
2: You're absolutely welcome.
0: Absolutely welcome. You mentioned masks and that's the world that we live in is, um, th- right? It's not It's not even just cultural masks. It's also people that have, uh, you know, diseases and people that um, have been diagnosed with different conditions is that uh it 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 really is fascinating that being yourself is as hard as it really is
1: no student should ever have to survive right you're absolutely right we should be doing everything we can for students to thrive
2: yeah
1: um but that means we have to change too
2: yeah they're they're sitting in our classes and they're so many of our students, and having been there, I know, are dealing with crisis and trauma. And, uh, you know, it, it's mentioned in Hammond's book, but the idea of um, what happens in our brain when we're going through that. And so recognizing where my students are at, and it affects even how I teach and how I engage people who are going through crisis. I don't know if you've, you um, have you the way people usually explain brain trauma is through the barking dog and the owl. Have you heard of that before? No. Okay. So I'm going to give it to you. This is how it usually it explains to children how we bring, see the thing is we bring our bodies to these spaces, right? It's not just sort of our intellect and all that it's our bodies come in. So as we, as students, as faculty come in, we bring our bodies. So the way that I've been explained this by is that this, if my hand is going to signal my brain, right? So this is, this is my brain. This is my brain stem, right? This is my brain stem. And this is my limbic system, which fancy amygdala emotions, right? Emotions here, brainstem, and this, my fingers, this is my higher brain. This is my cerebral cortex, right? So if everything's good, my higher order thinking and my emotions are all intact, right? So this is, this is my brain. And so this is life. The Life is the barking dog, right? So The barking dog is, you know, the microaggressions I experience, my home insecurity, my, I can't pay my rent, I mean, my my medical bills, I'm having a fight with my partner, all this is happening to my students every day, the barking dog, and then when this happens, the owl flies away, the barking dog makes the owl fly away, and what that signifies is, I'm not thinking about your concepts anymore, Ron, because my emotion system, my amygdala, my fight and flight, my... I'm, this is where I am, this is what I got. And you want me to talk concepts and I'm just trying to make it like that once, I'm just trying to make it. And recognizing how do I bring the owl back is the way that we need to create, this is where in my classroom environment, this is in my relationships, is how do I allow creating space for students to, to be reflective, to calm down, to be in the moment, to, to bring back that thinking. Again, I, I've been, and the reason I'm bringing that up is I've been thinking a lot about how do I silence that barking dog in my classroom, right. so to speak. And, how do you and, make
1: your classroom that safe space where the barking dog goes silent?
2: Yeah, and so that, using that like really simple way of looking at brain and crisis, I try to say, how do I, what what am I doing in my class to bring that back down because that's the experience of folks around us. You know, in, in my Chicago time, uh, way you brought up the idea of listening. You know, I, I, there was a, a, a man who was very angry and agitated. He's so angry and he, he was like yelling at people. And I walked up to him and I said to him, you know, I, I, I told him how, you know, how are you doing? And he told me what his situation was. And I said, I told him he was welcome here but this, I, I said this to him cause he was, cause you know, I, I'm not from the, that area. And I said, you know, I don't know what you're going through, but can you do me a favor? Can you help me understand? Cause I actually don't understand. And, and I need to, I, because you're, you're the one that can help me sort of understand what's going on and his whole countenance changed. And like, he went from that really angry to this sort of more like contemplative look. And he's like, you know, no, no one's ever asked me that question. Like no one's ever asked me to help them navigate. They just tell me what's wrong. Uh-huh. And-
0: Because we're solution-based, right? And, and this is, the, I, I, I'm gonna bring my wife into it, is that, that that's, that's what she tells me that I do every single time is if there is a problem, I will think of a solution within 30 seconds. And she's like, stop, stop thinking of the solution. Don't be solution-based for everything. Listen, and and maybe not even try to provide a solution. Just continue to listen and think. And that's kind of what we're asking other faculty members to do also, right, Ron, Is, is, is don't provide, don't think you are, the solution provider for every single student at least not initially
2: yeah stopping because and listening of, is part of yep. that bringing back the students like oh i can i can share and and give my experience and you're going to listen to me this is a safe that i think that's a huge part of it for us and it's not a and it's something that's going to take intention for us i don't think it's going to organically happen we have to create those spaces
1: I think about it, and, and of course, you know, I think Ron, you and I have, and, and I'm, wait, I'm just saying this because I've known Ron for a, a bit longer, but I think we have pretty similar philosophies um, in terms of teaching and education and students and things like that. And I always run up against that devil's advocate, right? Like, so one of my um, one of my really strongest like emotional strengths is sort of analyzing myself and my self-thoughts. Like if I'm about to make, because I teach like argument, right? So I always play that devil's advocate role, which can cause me to go to a place where I second guess all of my own decisions, right? Like I play the devil's advocate to myself so badly. But in a situation like this where we're having these conversations, I always run up against that devil's advocate in myself where I say, well, there's gonna be those instructors out there that say, I can't do that for every student. We don't have time to do that for every student. I have 45 students in my literature class. How am I supposed to be able to save this place for all of them? How am I supposed to do this? And how am I supposed to see that one? And how am I supposed to take care? If I can only take care of that one, what about the other 44, you know? And 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 sometimes I don't know, I don't have, I don't have the words to respond to that. I know what my, my gut response is. And my gut response is you just do it. You just, You do what you can do every day. And people are like, well, you're going to burn out. That's terrible and whatever. But, But I feel like if I bring my whole self to the classroom and I ask students to bring their whole selves to the classroom, that it sort of gets easier to just build that trust. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Like it gets easier to build that safe space when I am purposefully and openly Safe. I don't I don't know if that makes any sense.
2: No, it really does. And, and actually, it's consistent with the text you're reading, which part of that idea of partnership comes with rapport. Trust is built on self-disclosure. And what I mean by that isn't telling all our secrets, but rather that we're vulnerable and share our humanity and who we are. I even share the areas I struggle with in my own my own my own um, discipline. Like I don't know how I feel about this, and I'm I'm navigating this concept or i i just don't know you know and 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 they see wow professor fergus struggling with this concept or how to handle this and and even even being vulnerable and open in those ways invites the student to participate as well because we aren't that sort of here here i am i'm the sociologist that thinks that way and does the 24-7 no i'm a Parent and a spouse, and and I, I I'm in the community, and I, and I'm I'm navigating these concepts and these topics as as a whole person, and I try to do that with them, and I try to and acknowledge areas that I don't have it all figured out, and, and none of us really do. I think that's the as a lifelong learner. I tell my students, my authors of the textbooks, they don't have it figured out. And, and recognizing, you know, who they are. You know, I even encourage my students, why don't you email the author if you, you know, when they have valid, they have valid challenges, I, I said, hey, email. I have had students do that. And it's been great, actually. When like, oh, that, this, what they're saying here isn't, isn't necessarily accurate. I'm like, good, you're critically reading it. You're not just reading it. And so, I, I, so anything I can do to build trust by sharing myself that invites them to do the same thing. And as we build that, that's where partnership starts to happen because if it's the old sage on the stage and professor ferguson knows it all it shuts down anything else. Yeah. And actually and I actually ask them to challenge me in their work. I'm like, "No, if I'm if I'm saying something that doesn't connect or doesn't make sense, I actually need you to say those things or give me another viewpoint because maybe I'm missing it."
0: So Ron, when did you first experience this in your own life going through this formal education? Did you have did you have a similar experience where one of your professors was vulnerable and um, wanted to build that trust and didn't act like they knew everything? Or is this something that you have built on and kind of found since you've been uh, kind of out of school or maybe while you're doing your Ph.D.? Or did it happen earlier on?
2: You know, I certainly came from, like I said, my earlier my earlier days in education was the quite traditional, like the the, the profs knew everything, but I had a couple professors later on in my, my, my doctoral program who really were like, look, you know, we're all just trying to figure this out. Right. We're all, you know, and, and recognizing what that means as a lifelong learner, right. We're, 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 we're learning, we're, we're, we're trying, we'll make mistakes even when we do this work and that humility really connected with me because that wasn't what I had experienced before. And, it was something where I said, I want to be that kind of educator, because that immediately gave me a sense that the human being in front of me uh, is they're, they're navigating this stuff. To, yeah, they've read the stuff, they're, 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 they're clearly know their area, but they're also recognizing its limitations. And, and that's something that I want to do in my classes. And as I've grown, uh, with my students over the years, I've learned so much from them that I, I cannot, that's the only way I know how to do it anymore. Right. I mean, it's, it's yeah. been something where I only know how to do it with them in that partnership where we're navigating it together. And, you know, I actually challenge it. I, I don't want them to just process information. I want them to wrestle with it. Like if you're wrestling with this stuff and like, what does this mean to me? You're doing it right. That's exactly what you should be doing. There needs to be a healthy tension with our work. And I think the folks that did this work that started our discipline, all that, they were struggling, wrestling, angry, frustrated. And this is where great work comes from. And so that it's not a stoic sort of objective. I'm going to do this work because this is what I do. It's that we got stake in this. And so when I think about their family and their career and and their lives, and what does this mean to you? So everything is around that. And what my feedback I get from students is, this has changed everything for me or, or years later, I'm still thinking about your social class because these things come up and I got to think, what do I think about them? So that's where I think like, yeah, I've done it. You know, they're, they're using sociology. Just like I do in many ways. So.
1: I say, I just love that because there's so many times where I tell students, you know, they really want to know what I want. Like, especially in writing, like, you know, we'll, we'll be reading an essay and they're like, well, what do you want? What do you want me to say? What do you, what do you want me to say? What do you, what, what's your, how do you feel about it? And I'm like, I'm never going to tell you how I feel about it. I'm never. And that's what gets them at the end. They're always like, okay, now, can, now will you tell, like, they'll write their paper and submit it. And they'll, you know, in their reflection, will be like, now will you tell me what you think? And I'm like, no, it is. What's not important is my position what's really important is that you can adequately express and evidence your ideas mm-hmm. you should never ever ever and and it happens right it happens more than i ever want to admit across academia but i refi- like if they ask me i'm going to be like well what position are you and they'll tell me and i'm like okay so i'm the opposite Whatever it is, I'm the opposite because I'm gonna look for loopholes in your logic. But I'm never gonna tell you what I think or believe because that's not even important. What's important is that you're communicating well. You're writing your thoughts on paper in an organized manner. You're, You're building evidence, right? Like it isn't about, and I want them to see that connection between my class and your class. I want them to see that connection between all their classes, that it's about wrestling with why do I think what I think? How do I think what I think? How do I know what I know, right? All that great metacognition stuff. That's what, I mean, when that stuff starts taking a step forward, I'm like, my work here is dope.
0: Exactly. (laughs) But what's hard about this is that we start teaching this so late in people's education. Like, why can't this be, uh, my first thought was, it's great that Ron is doing this at a community college, right? But then I thought, well, can it happen that like at a high school? wait, can it happen in elementary? Can we actually teach students to, to think for themselves instead of just wanting the answer in like elementary school?
1: Well, if we stop giving them grades, Wade,
0: <laughs> stop
1: grading them. they.
0: Can... <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, that is, it is part of the system, right?
1: Oh, for sure.
0: I mean, there's, there's no denying that, you know, I, I, I still think that there is a place for grades sometimes because it can be a motivator for students, um, Mary says, Mary just wrinkled her nose at me. Uh, but maybe not Maybe not to the extent that we use grades um, currently.
1: Right. Well, I mean, and there's so much evidence about the, the inequi- inequitability of grades and, and how they really just pit students against each other and, and are used for so, such any, I'm not gonna go down that road today. You always right? say not, and then we'll end up spending a half an hour on it. I know we're not going to talk about going great, but what I do want to do is we've we've kind of we've kind of taken up all of our time today. But Ron, I'm not joking when I say we want to have you back. I'd like to have you back with a couple, actually, of the members of like our DEI group, and and we can talk about sort of how that came to be at Ridgewater, what DEI is, and how our group our communities of practice. Like I would love to have you and Andy and Mindy and Melissa all here and talking about how communities of practice was built and, and, and how, what it is so that other people listening in other places, you know, fingers crossed, other people are listening in other places, look at us and say, Hey, we can do that too. Like that's, that's amazing stuff. And and I'd like to, I'd like to share that with, with the larger
0: world. Well, it really is kind of the how to, right, Mary, that's, that was my question is what, you know, to Ron, what, what can we do, to create these spaces. And I think this is for another episode, because this is exactly, you know, we talked about quite a bit today, but I think you could do a whole episode on how do we create these spaces and how do we get where we want to go?
2: Absolutely. I'd be happy to be back. This has been a great conversation and I appreciate we get to talk about these things, right? With, you know, a real desire to increase our, you know, outreach to the communities in which we live and which we work. You know, I, this is like you said, this is a, a passion of mine to do this work. This is, I think this is what being a sociologist is. It isn't just about, you know, what we have this very narrow definition about being it, but to be the educator, I can be in the classroom. I believe I need to do this kind of work as well. My students benefit from the work that I do out in various different spaces. So thank you for having me.
1: Oh, thank you for coming, Ron. That was such—I so, was so happy that because you're kind of elusive, you're hard to get a hold of. And know, in the time of all of us being like, I have COVID. Wade has the flu. Like all this stuff is happening, and we made this work. And so, hopefully, we can do it again. I really, really appreciate you coming on our show.